We're going to turn in God's Word this morning to Isaiah 9. Isaiah 9. This is on page 729 of the large print Bibles in the pew and 573. I'm sorry. Yeah, 573 in the normal print. We're going to read all the verses of Isaiah 9 this morning. So bear with me. Here's the word of the Lord. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made known the glorious way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, to them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you with a joy at the harvest. They are glad when, you divide the, when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of the oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, for to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and the peace there will be no end on the throne of David over all his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel, and all the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen, but we will build with dress stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. The Lord raises the adversaries of resin against him and stirs up enemies. The Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel with open mouth. For all this his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. The people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. So the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail, palm branch and reed in one day. The elder and the honored man is head, and the prophets who teaches lies is the tale. Those who guide his people have been leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. Therefore, the Lord does not rejoice over their young men and has no compassion on their fatherless and widows. For everyone is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. For all his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. For wickedness burns like a fire, and it consumes briars and thorns. It kindles the thickets of the forest. They roll upward in a column of smoke. Though the wrath of the Lord of hosts through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, this land is scorched, and the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. They slice meat on the right, but are still hungry. They devour on the left, but are not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim. Ephraim devours Manasseh. Together they are against Judah. For all his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. This far the reading of the Lord, the Lord's word. Let's bow in prayer. 
Father, we thank you for your written word. We thank you for the fact that we can have it proclaimed to us week after week, many times. We thank you for those who proclaim it. We thank you for Pastor Bob for sharing his gifts and talents here with us. We thank you for all these many blessings. And yet, we read the Bible, and sometimes it's so scary. And but the truth of it is, we know you're the winner. We know you're on, we're on the right side. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, brothers. As we turn to God's Word this morning here in Isaiah, I want to look at three things from Isaiah chapter 9. First of all, we're going to deal with the subject of Jesus' incarnation. And for some of you, that may be a new term. For others of you, you might go, oh yeah, I know that term, I'm aware of it. Some of you perhaps can even define what the term is. But probably there are many in our even in our congregation this morning that if i were to simply ask the definition of what is incarnation you might uh, have to think either a long time or you might not even come up with the correct definition of what it is and yet i know you know the truth of it i know you know the reality of it and uh, for that reason our first point is simply going to be the definition of Jesus incarnation the definition secondly we'll deal with the reality of his incarnation the reality of it and thirdly the importance of Jesus incarnation as we know and are fully aware as believers in Jesus Christ uh, our world gets this season of the year all wrong uh, it's all wrong one because it's actually the wrong time of year if you were really going to be celebrating Jesus birth we would not be doing it in December the more realistic time frame would be in the spring uh, time frame to match the time when uh, lambs were birthed as well to match uh, then the prophecies of God's word uh, in regards to the fact that Jesus would indeed be the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world the historical realities that are presented to us in God's Word uh, do not present to us a, uh, a November-December time frame, but much more likely a spring or perhaps even fall time frame as well. So we, we know that the timing of this is all wrong, and we know that the reason for the timing was born out of, uh, uh, out of paganism as well in order to to somehow put together paganism and Christianity. But not only does our world get this wrong in terms of timing, our, our world gets this wrong in terms of what's really going on. We have uh, invented uh, a character in order to divert our attention away from the true reality. In fact, far more people are more interested in a character in a, in a red suit who, supposes, who supposedly lives at the North Pole delivering presents to every boy and girl throughout the whole entire world. Um, they, people are more captivated by that aspect of it uh, than they are the historical reality of the coming of Jesus Christ and the great joy that is actually to be found there. So we know that our world gets it wrong. 
And yet I'm, I'm reminded of the Apostle Paul, who as he's wandering through Athens on his way to a, a speaking engagement, sees an altar, an altar that is made to an unknown God. And Paul uses that altar as a means of contact, as a point of contact in which he might speak to these people, wrong as they were, wrong-headed as they were, wrong-thinking as they were, wrong-theologically as they were, Paul uses that as a means by which he might deliver truth. And so perhaps in that way, some of us need to think about this season of the year, that this can be our point of contact. People are indeed at least thinking somewhat religious thoughts, even though they might be wrong religious thoughts. They're at least thinking perhaps in that way. And so this gives us an opportunity to speak the truth, to speak the truth about what actually happened and what actually took place. And the reality is what we're really dealing with is an incarnation. Let's define it. It is the act of being made flesh. That's what an incarnation is. But a little more precisely, we might want to say it is the act of a divine being taking on a human nature. It is that which we read in John 1:14, And the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. You won't find the word incarnation in the scriptures. That particular word is not found there. It is indeed a derivative in the Latin of the phrase translated become flesh or made flesh that uh, was carried over as well into the Latin Vulgate translation of the scriptures in the flesh in caro. But it does express a biblical truth. The idea that Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, took on a human nature. That the divine Son of God willingly limits himself by a human nature limiting himself as the divinity to time, limiting himself to space, limiting himself to hunger, limiting himself to fatigue, limiting himself to pain, limiting himself even unto death. This indeed is the great mystery that is before us as we speak about Jesus Christ coming into this that it is the Son of God taking on a human nature, taking on flesh, having blood running through arteries and veins, that God becomes man. There is the Emmanuel, God with us. This is what we mean. And so in, in a point of contact with, with the world, yes, it would certainly be appropriate for us to speak about 
the birth of Jesus. But you know, you have to understand, how does the world understand that term? The birth of Jesus. My guess is, even though most a lot of people in our world might believe that Christmas is a celebration of the birth of Jesus, how many of them understand the realities that the Son of God, the divinity, took on human flesh. This is not just the birth of a baby. This is not like going to the second floor of Spectrum, the mother-child unit, and coming into the room and celebrating a gift that has been given to to a mom and a dad, not just a grandpa and grandma walking into a room and saying, oh, you have a baby. I think too many in our world think that that's what this is about. It's the birth of a man. It's the birth of a baby. It's the birth of a child. And they don't fully appreciate, they don't fully understand Therefore, you and I, as witnesses of divine truth, come into this world to witness, particularly at this season, the reality. No, it's not just a baby. This is God with us. This is an incarnation that Christ, the Son of God, takes on human flesh. Now, the reality of that is found in numerous passages. It's prophesied throughout the Old Testament. One could go back to the passage we read as our call to worship from Isaiah chapter 7. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and give birth to a child. Yes. Okay? A sign is going to be given, a miraculous sign. A sign that that takes us beyond human realities. A sign that shows this is indeed divinity at work. Virgins don't have children. But in God's world, they do. Or we could go to the Micah chapter 5 verse 2. Or we could go to all the way back to the Genesis 3.15 passage. And you know and we'll be looking at over the course of these weeks and that are before us, all of these Old Testament passages come out in which we hear God saying, My son is coming. My son is coming. He's going to come to you, O Israel. I want you to look particularly this morning at this passage in Isaiah chapter 9. And let's look particularly at this sixth verse. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, do you see in that passage, in that verse, the prophetic word 
of the Lord regarding the incarnation? If not, let me point it out very clearly. Isaiah is prophesying that a child shall be born. A child, not an angel, not some God-man being, not some super man, but a child. An ordinary flesh and blood human being. And that ordinary flesh and blood human being is going to be born. He is going to enter into this world by natural means. He will share in his mother's flesh. He will share in his mother's life. He will grow in the womb of his mother. He will be dependent in every way upon growing, upon maturing, as every other child that has ever entered this world will be. He will be dependent upon water. He will be dependent upon food. As an infant, he will be dependent upon his mother's milk. A child is going to be born. The word could not be more clear. The prophecy could not be stated in much more absolute terms for us. That the one that is being spoken of here, the one that is being prophesied, is indeed going to be flesh and blood. Going to be human. Now, who is the one that is going to be this child? Who is this one that is going to be born? Who is this human flesh, this human being that is being prophesied about? The government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called. Now, remind yourself of the fact that what you are called by name in biblical times is of great importance. A name signifies character. So much so that when God in his transforming grace comes into a life, he changes the name. So a Jacob becomes a Israel. And Abram becomes an Abraham. A Simon becomes Peter. A Saul becomes Paul. One's name is one's identity. Listen to the identity of the child who is to be born. He will be the wonderful counselor. He will be the mighty God. He will be the everlasting Father. He will be the Prince of Peace. What do those names tell you about the child? 
they tell you, one, he is divine. Two, they tell you he has an existence prior to his being the child that is born. Three, they tell you that this one who is going to come as a child to be born is not limited in his power, is not limited in his knowledge, is not limited in his wisdom. So the one who is unlimited, the one who is divine, the one who indeed is identified as God, is going to become a child and be born. Does Isaiah 9, 6 then tell us? It tells us that the incarnation is This is the prophecy. This is what is before us. This is what is going on. Not a babe born in Bethlehem, but the Son of God taking on a human nature. God places within our laps, my friends, the opportunity as believers in Jesus Christ to our world, to our society around us, who know, as it were, half the story, the opportunity to present the full truth of who is born in Bethlehem. Now, not only do we find that here in Isaiah, but we find the fulfillment of this. These are all prophecy, but the fulfillment of it. As one turns to, to Matthew, as one turns to Luke, as we hear the accounts of the birth of this child, we go back to these passages, we go back to the prophecies, and we are told in those accounts what is happening is that the prophecies are being fulfilled. That which God spoke about the coming of this child that is now born is the reality of an incarnation. Think particularly of that passage of Luke chapter 2 where we have the host of heaven celebrating this glorious event that has taken place. They are not silent about it. They do not say bah humbug about it. Here is the reality. The Son of God, the Christ, the Savior, is born to you. Glory to God in the highest. The greatness of praise belongs to God for the reality of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And as you turn to the epistles, the, the later books of the New Testament, listen to how this comes out. Turn with me to the book of 1 John. Book of 1 John.
I'm going to go to chapter 4. It's John chapter 4. Verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. And just stop and think. What would God use? God use as the test to distinguish between a true and a false spirit. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. John, as it were, is saying to us the crux of truth begins with this incarnation of Jesus Christ. If you don't get this right, you won't get the rest of the message right. If you don't start with the Christ becoming flesh, you don't end up at the right understanding of the cross. You don't end up at the right understanding of the resurrection. You don't end up at the right understanding of the ascension. You don't end up at the right understanding of the second coming of Jesus Christ. You don't end up with the right understanding of eternity if you don't get the beginning message right. How important it is then for us as believers to not only have our own theology right, but to communicate that theology correctly as well. This is the crux. If a spirit, if a witness does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, that is not truth. If you don't confess that the second person of the Trinity took upon himself a human nature, you cannot be a believer. This is how, this is how foundational this is. John could not be more clear about the importance of this incarnation. Go with, back with me to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Go to verse 14. 1 Timothy 3, 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, 
which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Understand now what we're about to read. This is the confession of the early church. Paul is saying, this is where truth begins. This is the foundation. And this foundation leads to correct living. John was emphasizing this confession leads to right theology. Paul is saying this leads to right living. What is the confession? He was manifested in the flesh. Vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. He was manifested in the flesh. He came. Jesus Christ entered this world and took upon himself flesh so that we call him Jesus. For he shall save his people from their sins. Go with me to one more. Philippians chapter 2. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. Starting at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He was Christ, the Son of God, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ Glory of God the Father. Where it began? Why does God the Father look upon the work of Christ with such acceptance? Because even though he was in the form of God, even though he was Christ, the Son of God, part of that Trinity, he takes upon himself a human he becomes flesh. The Word became flesh. And the Father says, Yes, that's my Son. And I take delight in it. The obedience of Christ begins with His willingness to take on that human nature. The plan of God for all of eternity, for your and my salvation, is caught up in the willingness of Jesus Christ 
to take upon himself humanity. Be a child who was born. But we can go beyond the theology of this to look at the importance. And I take you back then to Isaiah chapter 9. Let me point out four things from Isaiah chapter 9 as far as the importance of Jesus' incarnation. And this, by the way, is, is no limit upon this. It's not like there are only four things that are important. But there are four things that I want to point out from Isaiah chapter 9. The first of all is that this is the gift of salvation. Notice how the chapter begins. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. In Scripture, the understanding of gloom and anguish is the picture of spiritual separation from God. In Scripture, the picture of people in darkness is it the picture of people under the judgment and condemnation of God. Notice where the chapter begins. It begins with people in darkness. It begins with people in gloom. It begins with people in anguish. But God takes action. It's not that the people discover light. It's not that the people discover a means of getting out of their gloom. It is God who takes action. It is God, again, operating out of grace, operating out of love. God coming and God shedding his light. Now, what is the light that is being shed? How is it that God comes into this world with a marvelous gift of light, a picture of his salvation. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Consular, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's where the light comes from. That's where the salvation comes from. See, Isaiah is already prophesying that which John is going to say in 1 John, that which Paul is going to say in Philippians, that which Paul is going to write to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3. It's already being prophesied here in Isaiah. Yes, there is going to be an incarnation. And the benefit, the blessing, the gift of the incarnation is this. This is where your salvation is found. This. How often do we look past this event and look to the cross without realizing and understanding that without this, without the incarnation of Christ, there is 
no cross. The two are inseparable from one another. That's why the early Christian church is making this their confession of faith, that he came in the flesh. That's why John, in writing his gospel, in a time in which there were all sorts of other theories being propounded about Jesus and his coming into the world, says, no, what we have here is the divine one, the one who is in the beginning, the one who was the word. It is the word that has become flesh. See, saints, older saints, Christmas isn't just for children. Perhaps your heart has gotten a little hard about that. Perhaps your heart, because of where the world has gone, perhaps your heart, because of age, because of health, because of other circumstances, whatever. You're you're just a little hardened about this thing. It's like, ah, Christmas again. Ah, here we go, talking about Jesus' birth again. Can't we talk about the cross? There is no point of talking the cross without talking his birth. It is his willingness to take on our nature that brings the benefit of salvation to us. It is only because he dies upon that cross with flesh and blood that we are saved. It is only because he was born of a virgin Mary in a city called Bethlehem, that you and I have salvation. If God sends a host of angels to celebrate this blessed event, should not we rejoice this not continue to perpetuate false beliefs and understanding. Use this as a season. It's a crop right up, ripe unto harvest. Means by which we clearly tell the world what actually happened. not so much about a birth as it is about an incarnation. It is the gift of salvation. Secondly, it is the gift of joy. Look at verse 3. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. They are glad when they divide the spoil. What is it that makes them glad? What is it that brings this joy? Well, light has come. Salvation has come. Of course there is joy. We've been delivered from our bondage. The hymns we've we've sung, O come, O come, Emmanuel. 
in particular speaks of that bondage. That bondage of sin. The bondage of death. But we've been delivered from that. Where does that deliverance come from? For to us a child is born. To us a son is born. Where that deliverance comes from. That's where the joy comes from. Joy is not found in twinkling lights. Joy is not found in festive dinners. Joy is not found in the gifts that are exchanged. The joy that is found is found in the for us and to us child. Third, it is the gift of peace. Look at verse 7. The increase of his government and of peace. There will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Peace. Where does the peace come from? You. Child is born. In the incarnation of this one who is the divine Son of God, who is Christ, in His coming into this world is where we find true peace. The nations of this world, the individuals of this world will never find peace until they find the one who is the Prince of Peace, Christ, Jesus, the Lord. We will never find true justice outside of Christ. There will never be found true righteousness outside of Christ who takes on our flesh. And we have the assurance of that. Why? Because the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is not us doing. This is not us. This is not humanity. We run and hide from the presence of God. We flee. But God comes. And God will accomplish. And God has accomplished. And God will continue to accomplish. That's what gives us our assurance. Not on my shoulder. It was on his shoulders. And upon his shoulders. It's my sin. Your sin. God has accomplished. In this child who was born. In this incarnation. Our salvation. And God's people say, Amen. Father, we thank you for your word, for its reminder to us today of the greatness, the fact that Christ, God himself, has taken on flesh. And that in that is found our salvation, our joy, 
our peace and our assurance. Father, the believer says, tell me more. Tell me more of Jesus. Lord, we hunger and thirst for the one who is our righteousness. And it's in his name we pray. And God's people say, amen.